the privilege that is again given to us this afternoon to come together in the name of the great God of heaven and to render a worshipful service unto Him, to glorify and magnify His name, certainly is our prime objective. And we also look forward to that time of being encouraged ourselves to walk closer to the blessed pathways of holiness and to do those things pleasing and rightful in His sight. The songs that we have just sung together have lifted our spirits, encouraged us word by word. The prayer that we have joined and communally uttered unto the Heavenly Father has truly been a magnificent thing. And now we come to an opportune time to look into His Word, to remind ourselves of some of the truths found therein, and to be edified in truly the most holy faith. To note the wording of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. As you perhaps noted in the bulletin, the title, namely that of Neighborly Visitation, is perhaps a bit on the interesting side in that you might wonder in what direction we may take with our consideration this evening. For after all, there are two principal terms. One is neighbor. The other, of course, is the essence of visitation. May I suggest we will combine them in one sense at least and look at some verses and passages that encourage us as we think about matters of Christian obligation. By way of introduction, it certainly is an easy thing to appreciate from the reading of the Word of God that there are many obligations or duties enjoined upon the Christian. Some of them, as set forth in the Word of God, are very straightforward and really leave no room for distinction interpretation. It's very specific, in other words. As, for example, that text in John 4, verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. Thus, we can easily appreciate the fact then that one could have no hope of being pleasing unto God if he refused to worship Him. That is not left for you and me to decide as optional upon our own. We must worship Him if we are ever to entertain the hope of entering heaven. Many other verses no doubt could be thought of in a similar fashion where the word must is used to absolutely enjoin a particular activity. However, there are other passages in which an obligation is stated much more broadly, much more generally, so much so that really the principle is all that is especially noted. Note, for example, that famous golden rule of Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. There we notice, rather than something entirely specific, it is a very general statement that covers every aspect of life. To treat others in that way, we would prefer them to treat us. Well, those are just two basic statements about the broadness and generality that can come with the obligations given to us as those desirous of being godly. But mind, you might notice that what about visiting? After all, we sometimes use that word and we even think about visitation and we utter thoughts in our prayers about helping ourselves to better understand that. Is visitation a Christian obligation? If so, in what form? That is to say, must you and I engage in that activity in order to be pleasing unto Him? And if we find the answer to be yes, we should ask, what does it mean to visit? Does the Bible lay that out for us in any specific way to aid us to better understand it? What are my obligations, if any at all, as it concerns the matter of visitation? This evening, it'll be our challenge to consider some passages that touch this subject and attempt to arrive at some conclusions regarding it. 
First, there are three passages that we will turn to, one of which we read, but we will start with another one. If you would, let's turn to the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew. As we do that, we will come face to face with a very graphic, a very dramatic text that sets before us the issues concerning the matters of the eternal judgment. Isn't it amazing as one considers the profoundness that's attached to some of the passages in which visitation is discussed? By that I mean we shall find in some instances that salvation itself hinges upon matters of visitation. Beginning in verse 31 of Matthew 25, we remember that on that occasion Jesus was completing his answer to questions asked of him in Matthew 24 verses 1 through 3. In fact, in those opening situations, those questions asked of him had followed a very interesting scenario. Jesus had just taught about the destruction of that temple in Jerusalem. Though they had brought to his attention the beauty and the amazing size of the stones out of which the foundation was laid, Jesus very bluntly said, I'm telling you, there's coming a day when not one stone will be left on another. They were aghast at his answer, being virtually in disbelief about how could this gigantic structure that seemed so permanent and so strong be so quickly destroyed. As Jesus proceeded to answer the questions that they asked, it's important to notice what those questions were. Three questions. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Three distinct questions, and our Savior proceeded to answer them in order. We certainly shall not look in all of the entirety with respect to those three questions tonight, for that would take us far beyond our allotted time. But notice with regard to the latter two, They were, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Namely, his second coming. And finally, the end of this physical realm, the end of the world. As Jesus answered those questions, those latter two, one of the first principles he noted was, there will be no signs of my second coming. None. Then he went on to urge preparation. That's when he made note of five wise and five foolish virgins, five that were continually prepared and five that were not. He urged us to always be prepared. At that point, he taught the parable of the talents, urging us to use all of our capabilities and skills and talents in a productive and efficient and useful manner in service to him. And then to top things off, the icing on the cake, if you will, From verse 31 to verse 46 of Matthew 25, he gave a vivid description of the judgment. He began that by saying that all nations will be gathered here. Verse 32, there shall not be a single individual, past, present, or any that may yet live in future times for us that shall not be there. He then proceeded to describe a separation. There will be some labeled, if you will, as goats on the left, others as sheep on the right. At that point, he turns his attention to those on the right, and he notes the following thing. If you'd like, you might read with me verse number 34. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. 
On this occasion, with regard to the scene of the judgment set before us, Jesus has described this particular set of statements made to those on the right. Come, ye blessed of my Father, enter that glorious realm known as heaven. These were those that had been saved. They were saved. And in light of that point, he notes in verses 35 and 6, I was hungry, you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. On that occasion, with that statement made, verse 37 gives us a brief note about their response. Isn't it interesting? They were described as righteous, for it says, Then shall the righteous answer him, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And it's at that point Jesus said, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. On that occasion, notice the word visit did occur in verb form. Specifically, it was to be found in verse number 36. Notice also, while that passage is before us, verse 43, for the Savior also turned his attention to those on the left. Now these, of course, were not favorable in his sight. And isn't it sad to notice in verse 41, he said, Depart from me, ye, were, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why, Lord? For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and he clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, he visited me not. Again, they ask a similar question. Lord, when saw we thee in any of these circumstances? Verse number 45 responds, Inasmuch as ye did it not unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, ye did it not unto me. Isn't that a rather profound consideration? A rather amazing set of events that have been portrayed for us. In consideration of the word visit, though, notice what was included. Those that were blessed with eternal life had visited. They had participated in a degree of visitation on this occasion with respect to those that were sick and with respect to those in prison. Does that not set before us a rather interesting thought? It would appear, based on this text, that visitation is a very central and vital matter, doesn't it? Concern and consideration for those less fortunate be they sick, be they incarcerated. And in this case, that took place and they were blessed. Those, however, who did not visit, notice, in part, felt condemnation due to it. Maybe that challenges us to think about this. As you can see among the notes, in terms of that separation, one of the matters then to be noted was visitation. How important it is for us to consider seriously what the Scriptures teach about that and to ask about our duty and our obligation concerning it. I suppose it might be well to ask, what does that word visit mean in this text? The Greek word from which that's translated means, as you can see at the bottom of the screen, to look after, or rather to go to help, or rather to look upon in order to help or benefit. Notice that visit has to do with, in essence, meeting the needs of those in need. And in this case, it was those that were sick and those that were in prison. 
it's a rather interesting thought to notice that visitation based on this text would seem to be a vital thing, essential for us to seriously, seriously consider. But as one comments and thinks about that passage, we might immediately note the word visit is used in a variety of ways in the Holy Scriptures. Some of those ways, in fact, have to have a negative connotation. For instance, in the Old Testament, God, it says, visited Israel with Babylonian captivity, meaning He responded to them in virtue of their unfaithfulness. His visitation was a visitation of judgment. It was a visitation in which they received the reward due unto them for their lack of faithfulness. For instance, Jeremiah 23, 2 describes that usage of the word. But isn't it interesting to notice here the word visit has that meaning that we just noted earlier. To seek to meet the needs of. Notice also that you and I sometimes use that word differently today. We might speak of dropping by to visit an old friend or dropping by to visit a neighbor in which we simply mean to drop by for a few moments and have a time of acquaintance or to have a time of fellowship or conversation where it would seem the biblical word here means a little deeper than that, to seek to meet the needs of that one. With that particular text in mind, would you think with me about another one? Before we reach a final conclusion, let us try to consider the three of them and then draw some final summaries on those points. In the closing verse of James chapter 1, namely verse 27, we notice that the word visit will occur again. Now, we might initially note that the word that appears there is exactly the same word in Greek as the one that we just encountered in Matthew chapter 25. Perhaps this is a rather familiar text to us. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James, what are you saying? He begins a discussion having to do with pure religion. It would be well to note that all men are religious. doesn't matter whether a person attends any particular church, as he may call it or not. Every person has within him or her the innate characteristics of religion. That's the way God made us. That which is important is to use the Holy Scriptures to guide the productivity of that religion in the way that it should be, namely, according to the revelation of heaven. Notice he said, pure religion. Religion that has the very height of purity in terms of the heart, in terms of being unfeigned in character, in terms of being that which God would find pleasing. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows. In fact, the description that is used here directly in the Greek is this, the widows and the orphans. There is a consideration in this text for those that are recognized as needy, those that are recognized as often being without, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. The prepositional phrase is a rather significant one, isn't it? In their affliction. Those who are in some need of trouble or care. Those who are in a position in which the assistance and aid of others not only may be a good thing, but may be well needful. I would submit to you, in thinking about the nature of pure religion, how often the Scriptures encourage us to ponder and to strive for pure religion. In fact, in the very Beatitudes that our Savior uttered in, the, in Matthew the 5th chapter, 
In fact, verse 8 still says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. All of us, of course, have a desire to see God. None of us would ever say, I'd like to go to hell. In fact, there's not a sane person alive that would make a statement like that. But yet, we're told that if we are to ever enter the golden strand of glory and to be ushered into the glorious abode of an eternity in heaven, purity in heart is a required thing. Purity in heart is an essential matter. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said. Doesn't that remind us of the fourth verse of Psalm 24? When there it was asked, Who shall dwell in God's holy temple? Who will abide in His holy hill? Those with a pure heart and those with clean hands. Purity in life and purity in religion, purity in heart are desired and required things of us. James said pure religion. If our religion is to not be hypocritical, if it's not to be simply a mouth religion only, but if it is to meet with real and genuine con consideration, it needs to be such that one visits the fatherless and the widows. We have reached another point of conclusion, it would seem. We desire certainly to stand approved before God. We noticed in Matthew 25 the visitation of those in prison, the visitation of the sick. That was apparently a necessary matter. Here, the visitation of those that are orphans and the visitation of those that are widows also would seem to be a required matter of you and me. Perhaps we can already see that it's no wonder that as we seek to look after the needs of these, it does easily remind us to think very soberly about how we conduct ourselves with our finances and how, in fact, we use as a church our funds and our capabilities to meet these requirements that are laid upon us, to make certain that we support and help those that are needy, and to make certain that we do that in such a way that it has the blessing of God. With those two passages, at least in mind, there's yet another. This one and following it, we will arrive at some conclusions. But would you look back with me to Luke the 10th chapter? And this is the one from which our lesson text came earlier this evening. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On this occasion, beginning in verse number 25, a certain lawyer, as we read, came before our Savior and tempted him. But notice what he said. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? A grand and fantastic question. What thing, Jesus, should I do in order that I may obtain an eternal, everlasting life? Jesus rather quickly responded in verse number 26, What is written in the law? How readest thou? This lawyer was one, and might we remember that that word lawyer means a bit different than it does in our day and time. When we employ the word lawyer, we think about an individual specifically trained, skilled, and experienced in matters of civil law perhaps able to help in the deciding of disagreements between parties or to make certain that justice supposedly is carried out. The word lawyer, as it's employed in the New Testament, has relation to those skilled, supposedly, in matters of religious law. This person would have been knowledgeable of the Old Testament considerations, that Pentateuch, the law of Moses, if you will. Jesus said, those commandments, how readest thou? At that point, verse number 27, this man made note of the great commandments that were set before him. But isn't it interesting that the word neighbor 
was one thing mentioned, and thy neighbor is thyself in terms of love. It's at that point that he said, Thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. However, verse number 29, this lawyer desired to justify himself. He wanted to save face in essence. Jesus had answered his question and in fact used the very language of the lawyer. But now in attempting to justify himself, he said, By the way, who is my neighbor? And at that point, our Savior uttered no doubt one of the most memorable sets of thoughts and ideas to be found anywhere in the Word of God. In fact, quite likely, we could poll randomly people in virtually any city of the United States, and though they may never attend a worship service, there are probably two things in the book of Luke they would know about. The Good Samaritan on the one hand, and the characteristics of the prodigal son on the other in chapter 15. This is a rather well-known episode. Let's revisit it briefly this evening. Verse number 30. In answer to the man's question, Jesus said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. The story, this record of the Good Samaritan. We notice within it are several interesting figures, several interesting characters. First, there was a traveling man going down, as we see in verse 30, from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a rather difficult and treacherous downhill journey. And as that journey is made, it passes through some rather narrowed passageways, passageways where in the ancient days, those that were less than noble, shall we say, would hide amongst the rocks and the caves and jump forth and pounce upon unwary travelers and steal from them and rob them and do other things to them that are less than noble. Jesus makes note here that a certain man fell under such a situation. As he traveled that way, these thieves stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, and ran off and left him, leaving him half dead. It's at that point we might think this man was exceedingly fortunate. For in verse number 31, a certain priest came by that way. Here was a priest, a person from Old Testament knowledge, who was one who officiated at the services of the temple. Here was a man who knew the law, appreciated the commandment to love one's neighbor, supposedly, and who understood well the character of God's love for man, or so one would think, and the necessary matters of reflecting that love to others. However, isn't it interesting? The priest saw him. It's not that the priest was unaware the man was there. Verse number 32 says, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He chose to do nothing. He rendered no aid. He showed no compassion. He extended no care. 
He extended nothing that was of natural benefit at that time and place for this man who was ailing and this man who was hurting. But yet we might notice verse 32, this man met with another stroke of fortune for even though the priest showed no compassion, it would seem not too long thereafter a Levite came that way. As we remember, a Levite was one who was a descendant of Levi. In fact, the third of the sons of Jacob. We might remember that Levi was especially selected in the Old Testament to be the tribe from which those again who not only officiated at the temple and tabernacle, but also had the obligation to teach the children of Israel the law of Moses, according to Deuteronomy 33. And hence... We notice yet someone else very skilled and knowledgeable in terms of the law of Moses. We again stand somewhat ashamed when we think about this one and how he reacted in verse 32. Again, it's not as though he was not aware of this wounded man. For it says, when he was at the place, he came and looked on him. Can you and I imagine this Levite pausing and staring at this helpless man? And yet, choosing to proceed on his way and do nothing. Notice, though, that this man meets yet another stroke of fortune. Verse number 33. This time it's not a Levite, nor is it a priest. These two who professed religion, these two who call themselves a religious person and who would have been cataloged among the annals of those that were religious, yet they had showed no necessary compassion on this man that was in need. But in verse number 33, a Samaritan comes by that way in his journey. Immediately we notice the careful usage of the words that Jesus employed. Notice this man was not a Jew. Jesus gives us the impression that this wounded man was a Jew. As he spoke this word to the lawyer, the lawyer of course was Jewish in his background and history. That would have been the most meaningful matter in which to present this story. Jesus said, here was a Jew in need, and yet a Samaritan came by. The Samaritans and the Jews despised one another. In John 4 verse 9, even there the woman at the well, as she spoke with Jesus, said the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The history of that is a bit extensive. In our study of the Old Testament, we will have often occasion to revisit it. It all began in 2 Kings 17. On that occasion, when the children of Israel, the northern kingdom, went off into Assyrian captivity, that Assyrian monarch brought in other peoples and settled them where the northern kingdom had been. Those people that he brought in intermarried with the people there. Thus, the Jews considered these Samaritans as half-breeds. They weren't pure in their ancestry, and the Jews hated them for it. The Jews despised them so much so that quite often... As a person traveled in Palestine, any Jew would virtually always, with purpose, avoid the place of Samaria. They would cross the Jordan River, travel north or south, and then cross the Jordan again once they got past Samaria. Jesus is making a point. Here's a Samaritan, a person you might have thought would be hated by the Jew and would thus offer no aid in any way to him, and yet, verse number 33 this Samaritan also sees the wounded man. But notice, not only did he see him, he had compassion. He extended a hand of care. He sought to meet the needs of this hurt individual. So much so that he went to him, verse 34. 
the Greek word carries for us the purposeful motion to the place where the man was. Furthermore, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and what's more, took care of him. We see a picture of an individual such that the lawyer could not miss the conclusion. When Jesus reached the end, would you notice again verses 36 and 7? Jesus lets this lawyer answer his own question. Remember, he had asked, Who is my neighbor? Jesus said, Now, Mr. Lawyer, which of these three do you suppose was neighbor to the wounded man? Was it the priest? Was it the Levite? Was it the Samaritan? Isn't it interesting the language that the lawyer chooses to use? Notice he didn't use the word Samaritan, but he did say, he that showed mercy on him. Even if he couldn't bring himself to use that term, even if he couldn't bring himself to compliment that Samaritan by using the name, nonetheless he had to admit the one that was neighbor was the one that showed compassion. And then, if you will, the final consideration that carries that for an eternity is this. Jesus said unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. And by inspiration, those words ring as loudly in my ears and yours today as they did to him. We are also expected to be ministers of mercy, extended matters of neighborly visitation. At this point, could we not summarize some of what we've seen so far this evening in these three passages, Matthew 25, James 1, as well as Luke chapter 10? I've summarized them in these bulleted points. We have seen, in terms of the matter as it relates to the judgment, that visitation is an obligation for Christians, for you and me. It's not as though we can simply pay or hope that someone else shall do that. That rests on the church, and the church consists of individuals, and thus it rests upon you and me. Notice also what else that signifies. We did note especially some that Jesus listed. In Matthew 25, it had to do with the sick and those in prison. In that scene in James chapter 1, it related to widows and orphans. And in that text of the Good Samaritan, anyone who is in need. We each know that there are many in need. Perhaps some in our own families, others that are our neighbors. We certainly appreciate then that we must respond in terms of considerations of visitation and extend to them that which the Scriptures demand of us. But not only that, what does it mean to visit? We notice that the definition of that word meant not simply to look upon them and wish them well. For after all, did James not address that very point? In James chapter 2, we remember that text in which it reads, considering verses 14 and following, what good does it do to say to that man that's cold, be thou warmed and filled? That's the very text in which he said, Faith without works is dead, being alone. But rather, verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. James's point for us to seriously consider was, we appreciate then that that matter of visitation means to meet the needs of them simply wishing them well when we are able to do something to meet those needs, we have not fulfilled our scriptural obligation. But what's more, is it not the case, especially as we saw it in the character of that good Samaritan, that visitation requires a tender heart? We each have that capability of being cold and calloused, or we can, with a tender heart, be mindful 
of the needs of those about us? Is it not safe to say that we must have some type of a tender heart in order for the character of the visitation and the demands of it to reach our consideration for us to, to, to pursue? The matter of a tender heart. At this point, we noted a moment ago that priest and that Levite. Put yourself in their position just a moment, if you would, to walk by the way and find a person who is in such dire need of assistance. It would take a rather calloused disposition, would it not, to pass on by and to do nothing. Notice, though, the Good Samaritan, with a tender attitude and disposition, went to him, extended compassion, and in fact, even went beyond by telling the host at the end, whatever more is required, I'll pay it when I return. It's something to consider then in light of the next point. As we've looked at those three in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10, it still says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. But in the fourth place, We have mentioned this in passing, but may we revisit it briefly and lay some degree of emphasis upon it. It has to do again with that case of visitation is more than intent. Perhaps we can be so guilty of knowing and intending to do something. We perhaps let day by day pass and think, I should do this, I ought to do that. The scriptures require this of me, but I'll, I'll do that later. Intent will not make anyone worthy of heaven. The scriptures demand of us, as Jesus said, it's by our works that we shall be judged, Revelation twenty-two twelve. It's by our works that we will meet the Savior in judgment, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. It's by our works, Paul said in Romans 2, verses 6 to 9, by which we shall be judged. Intent is not the same as works. Thus, when it comes to visitation, May we remember that the judgment scene placed that as an obligation upon us. At this point, might we notice, number five, it's not always the case that visitation requires a great deal of you and me. Have you noticed individuals and perhaps even in discussion with some, you have found that something as simple as just a phone call, as simple as perhaps sending them a card will make their day in such a way that they had felt lonely. They had felt maybe that they had been forgotten. They had felt a sense of depression in that others no longer seemed, at least to them, to have a, the care that they thought would be appropriate. And all it took was just a simple call. And they immediately appreciated they had not been forgotten. They had not been cast aside. Sometimes it's the simplest of matters in light of this that can make a difference in the lives of others, isn't it? Now, we appreciate that other visitation may demand more of us. There are others, for instance, as this man was in Luke 10, this good Samaritan extended a great deal in a sense to him. He conveyed him to his place, to, to that inn. We are not told exactly how far out of the way this man had to go. We're told he was, this uh, man that had been wounded was headed toward Jericho. We do not know where this Samaritan was going. We're only told he was traveling that way. But at any rate, he took the liberty and the opportunity to provide the assistance that he was able to do. It might be at this point we can pause and think about the leadership of our congregation. 
we understand that our contribution as it's collected each Lord's Day as the command of God is given. We're given command to utilize that in 2 Corinthians 9 in such a way to carry forth the works of the church involving three things. One is evangelism, one is benevolence, and one is edification. Those works of benevolence would fall under the discussion of our term visitation tonight. Some of the monies that we contribute to the cause of Christ, our elders see fit to channel toward matters of benevolence. That's a good work. It's an appropriate work. It's a scripturally approved work. Maybe you and I can be ever aware of other needs and convey those to our elders so that they could make decisions. If others are in need, that they could satisfy and meet those needs if they deem that an appropriate and right thing to do. Isn't it interesting then that as we devote those monies to those things, the care of those in need as genuine widows, as those that are orphans, as those that are in prison, as those, in fact, as we've noted earlier, that may well be sick. To state these first five matters is perhaps to race in our mind to the last one. We indeed would be remiss not to make note that the greatest need that any person has is not physical at all. It is spiritual. All of us have within us the power to be good visitors, especially in light of the opportunities we may have to speak about Jesus to invite others to our services, perhaps to offer to give a ride, maybe to encourage and edify in ways that have to do with the Scriptures. We frequently in our prayers pray for those that are outside the church in that they might have opportunity and time to come to know the plan of salvation and respond to it in faith. The best neighbor we could ever be to any person would be if we could help them to come to know the truth of God and to ultimately obey it in faith. Thus, might we notice that when we talk about the needs of others and being a good neighbor means to meet those needs, may we not always think solely about physical, mundane things in that realm or reign. Not that they're unimportant, of course, but may we also appreciate that the greatest of their needs is such that upon the day of judgment they can stand before their God and rest assured that they will have been able to enjoy a home in heaven. For if they are missed that, then no matter what they experienced in life, no matter what physical aid we may have given, if they aren't Christians at that point, they would gladly trade any and every gift we ever gave physically in exchange for one element of obedience to the gospel. May we then notice in terms of the gospel several passages that challenge us to ever remind ourselves of the greatness of that kind of visitation too. In Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus himself speaking says, Fear not him that kills the body but has nothing more than he can do, but fear him which can destroy both body and soul in hell. Thus, there is something that rests higher than simply the physical. Or also in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, Though Paul was a noble proclaimer of truth, when it came to his discussion with the brethren in Corinth, he said, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. He knew that above all things else, he might be able to contribute or share. He would in all positions be most miserable if he refused to do that which was his ability to share the gospel of Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, Paul described himself to the brethren in Rome as one who's debtor to preach the blessed news of the gospel. He said, I'm debtor and I'm ready and I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. 
May you and I feel the same. Perhaps one final text we might note is Mark 8, verses 36 and 7. For on that occasion, Jesus states it in such a way that none of us are able to easily forget it. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, once we appreciate the eternality of the soul, we understand that visitation, if we're to be a good neighbor, will involve our at all power and the capability we have of sharing the gospel with those, for that's their greatest need. In our study of visitation tonight, could we summarize and conclude our lesson by making note of some of the following points? First, we ask, is visitation an obligation to the Christian? Yes, it is. We have found it was a statement as it relates to those at the judgment, and those who had not done so were found wanting. They were found lacking. We furthermore noted several things that can help us as we think about visitation. The fact that a tender heart is in need, that as we look about us to be ever able to appreciate the needs of others. Not only, of course, those without, but also those in our own body. Christians also have needs. We remember that in Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 15, we weep with those that weep, we rejoice with those that rejoice. Might we also notice some other things also that we came to appreciate? Namely, that the word visit means to meet the needs of. If that's in our power and our opportunity to satisfy and to look toward the beneficial meeting of those needs. And then lastly, we closed our lesson by noting that visitation involves action. That it's not just intent. And we saw, of course, that it sometimes doesn't require much on our part, but oh, how meaningful it can be on the part of others. And then finally, the character of visitation concerning the gospel, the teaching of the good news to those who have not yet obeyed it. Tonight, neighborly visitation, it's an interesting and sobering subject, isn't it? One that we should give oft reflection to. To this evening, have you and I been good neighbors? Have we been involved in neighborly visitation as we ought to have been? May we at this time think and analyze our own life, examining ourselves, whether we be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. If we could be of assistance to one or more in your initial obedience to the gospel, perhaps you've never become a Christian at this point. There was a, the Son of God who died for you. He gave His life to save you from sin. He gave His life to save you from an eternity in a devil's hell. Have you obeyed that gospel? Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2.38. If you've done that, but perhaps the attitude and nobility of visitation is not something that you've participated in. In fact, you've just assumed that others perhaps have done it when all along you had obligation as well. If you'd need to make a public statement of your desire to do better in that regard, we'd be happy to pray for you for your increased strength. If either of these things would be the need of your heart and life tonight, will you not let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?